Welcome to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude towards religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Looks don't matter. It's what's on the inside that counts. Most of us grew up hearing some version of this. In reality, I'm afraid this little ditty may not hold up so well, but at least it causes us to reflect. Dating sites without photos don't go very far. We want our partners to be deep and thoughtful and caring, but we also want them to have an appearance we find appealing. The weekly service structure for a church may be considered the outside in a way. Surely for the beginner or visitor, it, what's, it is what gets people's attention. Historically, we call it liturgy, the basic structure for a worship service, which includes various readings, creeds, hymns, rituals, and practices which are done in a certain way. Some traditions even have what they call liturgical calendar, following the same readings and celebrations as others on the same dates around the world. Stand up, sit down is the stereotype common to the layman. Though the uninformed, it can seem meaningless, repetitive, and lacking in relevance for daily life. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a spasmodic reaction of sorts to the lowest of liturgies even. Perhaps most dramatically, it was symbolized by organs being replaced by guitars, robes by open collars, rituals by attempts at relevance. Ironically, this non-liturgical form became its own liturgy of sorts. While denominational distinctives became less obvious, wording and music selections became in the contemporary church surprisingly uniform. It seemed to be working to stem the tide of attendance decline for a while. But then against the tide stood traditionalists of all forms, denominations, and theological persuasions. Many of them were overtaken by the waves they tried to stop. Others rode their churches down until the doors closed. Our guest today refused to be defined by those categories swirling around him. He still wears a collar. His title is officially the very reverend father. He values the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 articles and considers himself in the mainstream of the Anglican community. If I keep going, you're going to think he's boring, but you'd be wrong. Welcome to Church Hurts and the very Reverend Chip Edgar, the founding rector of Church of the Apostles in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, John, thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> you know, Chip, I'm going to just reverse things. We were talking before the show. It'd be worth people getting to know you a little bit personally. Let's talk about your family because you're one of those fathers that's allowed to get married. And we're going to talk about that later, but let's talk a little bit about, um, about your family. Describe, um, describe the five. 
Um, so my wife, Beth, and I, um, we've been married for 30, um, uh, 31 years now. Um, I'm, I'm moving into John Bash territory, which is to say I'm getting to be an old guy. Um, but um, Beth and I, um, we've had three babies um, the routine way. Um, so our oldest son, Chase, is studying to be a priest. Uh, he and his wife, Jessica, live in Birmingham, Alabama, where uh, he's in seminary. She's in medical school. Well, she's in her residency. She's finished medical school. Uh, my son, John, lives here in Columbia, not far from us. He is uh, a beer distributor for KW Distributors, uh, the Anheuser-Busch um, distributor here in Columbia. Um, COVID has been incredibly good to him. Uh, uh, they, they, ser- they sell beer every day like they sell it on SEC football weekends here. Columbia is an SEC football town, the University of South Carolina, the real USC. Um, the Gamecocks are here. Um, and okay. so football's a big deal. He sells, he has, uh, since March, he has not missed a promotion, um, has not missed, um, uh, an incentive. I mean, he is, he has made buck. Um, well, it's why we have the recovery. Uh, we have the recovery side of this show right. and it's because right. of people like your son. Because people ahead. like him. Yeah. It's all his fault. Um, my daughter, Ann Tyler, recent grad from Wheaton college where both Beth and I graduated from, uh, she's married to Jacob. Uh, Jacob, uh, who has a day job, is a poet. Um, and um, Jacob has, even at the young age of, I guess Jacob is 24, 25, um, has already published six poems. I mean, he's, I, I think he's um, really a, quite a brilliant poet. Wow. Um, and and uh, then that's, something happened after three. Right. So we had those three. Heads. Yep. And um, we decided that our family was not finished. We weren't uh, encouraged to have any more kids biologically, so we decided to adopt, and that kind of threw Beth and I into kind of a whole conversation uh, about adoption and what we wanted to do in terms of expanding our family, and we ended up um, deciding to adopt special needs children from China, Um, and so in 2004, we brought our daughter Mei Mei home. I tell you, that's one one of the craziest experiences of my life was I, I don't know how to say it other than sort of discovering that we had a daughter uh, who lived in China while we were there. Uh, it was really impressed on us um, that we ought to go back and adopt again. So we went back in September, 2005 and brought Liza home. Both and Liza and Mei Mei a- were special needs kids. They both had cleft lip, cleft palate. And so we have over the last 18 years, taken them through the journey of or 17 years, taking them through the journey of getting um, those surgeries to repair their cleft lip and palate and, they're spectacular, doing amazing. Uh, and uh, Liza, no, Meme is a student at Anderson University in South Carolina, a freshman, and Liza's in her senior year of high school. So that's my family. And and there there's a part of that though that we got to know. I mean, those two girls, had they not come to be your daughters, good chance would have been killed, right? Obviously, we don't know the story. the The two options are they had been. Um, dropped off by their parents at the orphanage, which was not uncommon for um, parents that had second children in a, in a com- country that has a one-child policy. Um, or a worst-case scenario is that they were forcibly removed from parents who had, who had made the mistake in China of having a second child. Uh, but either way, they had come to the orphanage. 
So they wouldn't have been killed, um, but they didn't have a very bright future. As I understand it, and I, I might be wrong about this, but as I understand the social welfare, the social welfare system in China for orphans gets them up through about age 16, including education and everything, but then they're on their own after that. And um, a lot of those kids um, end up on the streets um, and life is very, very difficult. But the special needs really added an additional component would have been, to it. Yeah, I think life would have been very, very hard. So, yeah, um, people people often say to us that they'll say like they'll comment on how blessed May May and Liza are um, to have been adopted by us. Um, the reality is that that we have been amazingly blessed um, to be able to adopt May May and Liza. I mean, they're wonderful human beings. Um, both of them have enriched our lives in ways beyond measure. It, it, it's hard for me to imagine the richness of life that we experience in our household without Mamie and Liza. Um, so the blessing actually, I think, runs the other direction. We hear that they, often. For some reason, we seem to have a lot of guests who have added to their family through the foster hmm. system or, or through adoption. But I asked you here because of uh, the issue of tradition in light of a insecure time in culture. And you heard my intro meandering about liturgy. And I'm wondering if you could kind of give our radio listeners here an idea. Why didn't you go that contemporary church route? Um, can you kind of give us a little bit of an elevator speech on liturgy? Um, you know, so elevator speech, I don't know what the 60 second version is. Um, the, the liturgy is really a kind of a come and see, um, experiential sort of thing for me, at least it was, um, my wife and I grew up in a different tradition. Um, and when we got married, actually the very first Sunday that we were married, we were invited to a church in this Anglican tradition. And it was no going back after that. I mean, it was just the most profound experience that we'd ever had in worship. Um, I had grown up in a tradition, you know, it's a tradition away from which I moved, but a tradition that I don't have any kind of um, ill will towards, or I, I don't think less of it experience, um, was that um, it was a tradition in which the, the business of worship was a kind of at least at the very best, a benign experience, um, and maybe at worst, uh, a kind of a, a burdensome experience. Um, it, it always felt stilted, and and it was the, the sort of thing that the, the sermon played such a central role that if the sermon was good, church was good, and if the sermon wasn't great, the whole thing was shot. And and I used to jokingly say that, that um, in the Gospels, when Jesus talks about taking up your cross to follow him, I had sort of grown up assuming that going to church was taking up your cross. Um, having to sit through that hour um, was taking up your cross. And suddenly I found myself this very strange experience of on Friday and Saturday, finding something stirring in my heart and, and wanting to be in church on Sunday mornings. I'd never experienced that. I'd been serious about my faith for a long, long time, but I'd never experienced that before. And so that began the, the sort of this process for both Beth and I of asking a lot of questions. What was going on? Why did church look this way? Um, what was it that was attractive about it? So that's not my elevator speech. If I was going to give my elevator speech, it's that um, the traditional liturgy um, and the way that that those in the Catholic tradition, and so in the Catholic tradition, I would include churches of the East, 
um, the, the Roman Church of the West and the Anglican Church, the understanding of, of, of worship is that it's an opportunity to get us out of ourselves. Um, you know, I spend an awful lot of time worrying about myself and involved in myself and in, sort of in the context in which I, you know, and what the seeker movement, which is what sort of led to that contemporary um, style of worship, the contemporary church sort of said, uh, we, we want people to feel at home with themselves. And so come and find sort of what you experience in the rest of your life. What the liturgical experience does is says you need a place outside of yourself. You need a place where you are not the center of attention, where your attention is called away from yourself and towards God um, in a way that doesn't happen at other points during the week. And so the, the liturgy, which emerged over history, um, times, various locations, in some cases, the church was um, prominent and powerful and wealthy, where from whence the liturgy emerged in other places, it was poor, downtrodden, a minority voice at best, a persecuted voice. And throughout its history, this liturgy has emerged, which takes us out of our cultural context and places us into another context altogether. Now, um, now that, now that, Chip, that sounds really good. <clears throat> I think the reality of um, most people in your generation and kind of my generation is that people were leaving those traditions because it felt irrelevant, unconnected, disconnected to real life. And so, you know, I know I was in the mainstream of that seeker movement, and my church was typically filled with at least half of people that came out of the Roman Catholic tradition and that kind of formal worship. But somehow the way you do it, you didn't just buy into it the way it was. What did you do different? Because you're getting people who got bored with the contemporary church, didn't, didn't you? Yeah, we, I mean, that, that's true. And, and that's not true of, of my local parish. I mean, that's true of, of the Anglican movement, the Anglican renewal movement in the United States. Um, that, that's kind of characteristic. And books have been written about it, um, you know, as back as early as the 80s, Bob Weber was writing evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. I think some of it was, uh, some of it was simply um, teaching it, believing it. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the great problems that American Protestantism in the 60s and 70s had um, was not so much um, sort of how they behaved on Sunday, but what they actually believed behind how they behaved on Sunday. The traditional liturgy invigorated by um, a, a vibrant, compassionate, dedicated belief. Um, I mean, that's a 747 that will take off the end of the runway, no question. And people are discovering that. People have discovered that. Um, you told me about a youth pastor you ran into recently who was really ready to give up. And there's mm -hmm. something about what you guys were doing that caught his attention and gave him some encouragement. Tell us about him. There are kind of two pieces to that story. Um, and, and, and John, I'll, I'll go ahead and apologize off the bat. Um, my spiritual gift, I always tell my congregation, my spiritual gift is obfuscation. Um, so you ask a direct question and I wander around for a long time and get very confusing before I answer it. And, and I apologize for that. But two things were happening in the life of, of Church of the Apostles. Um, and one of those things was we were a church that, that was really uh, committed to the idea of grace. Um, what, what has happened, I think, in American, at least conservative Christianity, I, I don't want to throw evangelicals under the bus. I are one in some measure. 
but grace had been sort of substituted with law. Um, and, and Christianity had become about what you did and what you didn't, th those sorts of things. And, and that is exhausting. I mean, that is just, that's a recipe for uh, burnout. And so apostles had, one, become known as a place where grace was really lived out. Um, and and it, that, that has liturgical implications, which I'm going to get to in just a second. But it sort of permeated our life. And somehow, and I, I don't know that I know the answer for this, but it had become kind of part of the reputation that we had as a church. So to this, um, to this former youth minister, that you ask about. I mean, this happened years ago, but as a young guy, he'd gone off to seminary, studied, gotten his MDiv, gotten ordained, um, and served as a youth minister in several very large um, Baptistic tradition kind of churches. I think a couple of them were non-denom, but they were basically out of that Baptistic tradition. And one day, I, I don't know all the ins and outs behind it, but one day he was, uh, they were leaving church, he and his wife and their little kids. They got in the car and he just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. They went through a period where um, they just didn't go to church. Um, and then they got to a point where they felt like that wasn't good because they hadn't quit loving Jesus. Um, and so they didn't really feel like they had the permission to quit loving his body, the church. Um, but they just couldn't go back to what their experience had been. And they were at a dinner one night and they were talking about where they might go to church. And a woman who was in the same restaurant, not in their party, um, overheard their conversation came over to them and said, you should try Church of the Apostles. Oddly enough, um, when they started coming to Church of the Apostles, they never saw that woman. She was not herself a member of our parish, uh, but somehow our reputation and what snippets she had caught of their conversation connected in her mind, and she offered that. Anyway, they showed up at Apostles uh, of a Sunday morning. He tells the story that they were going through the liturgy, and he said, at one point, I just found myself crying. And we went home and uh, went through the week and we got up the next Sunday morning and his wife said, do you want to go back to that Church of the Apostles again? And he said, yeah, I would love to. And she said she wanted to as well. So they came back and he said, again, going through the liturgy at some point, at some point he found himself crying. And this happened week after week. I mean, several weeks in a row, he would just find himself in the midst of the liturgy with tears on his face. The kind of funny thing is after about five or six weeks, one Sunday morning, they were getting up sort of going through the, do you want to go back to Church of the Apostles? And his wife said, well, I'm happy to go back to Church of the Apostles with you, but if you cry again, I'm done. Um, and, um, <laughs> and so that got him sort of thinking, like, where do these tears come from? And one of the first things he observed is what it didn't come at the same point in the liturgy. You know, the liturgy is a, is a, is a very well-connected and very intentional regression that, that takes you from one place and deposits you in another place. Um, but okay, it's, wait, it's not wait, like, I'm gonna, let, me, let me interrupt you for a second. At least grant me this you guys somehow do it differently. Maybe it's the same, but you really work having people understand what's going on. I go into the typical liturgical church. I am just lost in the hymnal. I'm lost in the paperwork. I don't know what's going on. The guy up front has no emphasis and it just, <laughs> bo you know, it just kind of drones on. And I'm just like, I feel like they don't know what they're doing. Why am I bothering being here? You don't do it that way. No. One of my associates, he's now um, in Kentucky, planted. A, he left here and went to plant a church for us there. He was a professor at a local um, Christian college. He taught youth ministry and leadership, and he became an Anglican priest. And at that particular Christian college, that was a big deal. Um, this guy wearing a collar in, in, a, in a church that was not a liturgical church. 
or I'm, I'm sorry, in a college that wasn't connected at all to the church. And so one time he was asked, he, he was asked something about dead liturgy. And his answer was that th- those are wrong categories. Liturgies aren't living or dead. They're either true or untrue. Christians are living or, or dead. And he said, if you take, you know, vibrant life filled Christians connected to a true liturgy, um, it's a remarkable thing. And I think that's what you have at Apostles is you've got a very vibrant, uh, it, it, it's a congregation that is committed to the gospel, loves the gospel. And, and I think maybe this is what we teach the liturgy very seriously. Um, that is to say, we, we help people to understand what that movement is, what's going on in their lives. And, and I think that when you begin to see that, when you, when you begin to understand what's going on, and, and that's what this guy's story, this youth pastor's story, he, he came to realize that what was happening to him, he said, he said, you know, that sort of the promise of worship is that we turn our attention towards God. He said, what was happening to me was that it was either always being turned back on myself. So I would go into church and instead of hearing a sermon about the redemptive work of Christ, I would get a sermon on like the 10 best practices for Christian parents or how to manage your checkbook, which are good. Those are important things. I mean, Christians need to know how to parent they need to know is such that the love of Christ is engendered in their children. Christians need to know how to manage their money. I, I'm not, I wouldn't knock that at all, but that's not the point of worship. Uh, worship is to focus our hearts and minds. And that's what this guy discovered. He said, I always wanted church to be about God. And it was either about me or it was about the senior pastor. And when I came to apostles, I realized it almost didn't matter who that guy up, who that guy in front was. I was being invited on a journey deeper into the, the mystery of the redeeming God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. See, 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 if this, see if this makes sense. From a more contemporary model is a feeling that the people up front are trying to convince you that this is good, this is relevant, and you ought to stay. In a sense, you're being sold something. Where from your perspective, it's more you're saying to people, we're offering an opportunity to get in touch with God. And right. if that fits you, we're really glad that you're here. If not, we have a handbook to other churches who might do it a different way. Is that right? Yeah. So not long after Apostles was founded, we started drawing students from this Christian college. We had lots of students showing up. And 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 the students had these assignments from their class. They were supposed to go to their local church, and they were supposed to interview the pastor and ask these questions. And one of the questions is, um, uh, where do you see your church 10 years from now? And my answer was, I, I hope that my church 10 years from now is doing exactly the same thing that we're doing today, in that what we do is we, we set a table where the Word of God is heard. So one of the things that marks the liturgy, the, the traditional liturgy, is a, a remarkable uh, yeah, a really large amount of scripture reading. So the scripture's heard, the preaching of that word is heard, and then the sacrament is celebrated. And my hope for 10 years from now is that we're doing that as faithfully then as we're doing it now. And I don't have designs on how big the church is or what the church's impact is going to be or anything. That, that's, not, that's not my job. My job is to, is to make sure that that table is set Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, so that the saints of God can come and they can feast and be encouraged um, and have their hearts and minds transformed by entering into this mystery of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Two things I want to get from you here. 
our podcast listeners aren't able to see anything, so they don't get to see you in your beautiful collar. But those who listen on YouTube, there's a part of wearing that collar that does put you and connect you into a tradition where people think you are Catholic, or if you're in a different part of the world, they might think you were an Orthodox priest, and connects you to people that really, in some of those traditions, what you believe is no more like these people than fly to the moon. Your service may have liturgical elements to it and be a liturgical church, but in a lot of those other traditions, you, that's just not where you're coming from theologically. How do you connect that? How do we, how do we make sense out of what one church that seems like they're standing up and sitting down like the other one, how are they different? Aren't you different from that mainstream crowd? So I, I share an awful lot of ground with, with Bishop Robert Barron, the Roman Catholic bishop. I don't know what his diocese is, out in California somewhere. Amazing preacher, amazing teacher. He's got this Word on Fire ministry. It's called Ascension Press, I think, is their publishing and video kind of arm. It's amazing. And the teaching is fantastic. Um, I, I participate in that stuff, and I think these are my brothers and sisters. And, and that's true. I'm, I'm a very good friend with the Russian Orthodox, uh, the, the, sorry, the Greek Orthodox Church here in Columbia. Father Michael and I, our daughters play soccer together, played soccer together. They both graduated now. He's a great guy. We talk about our faith. He's vibrant. He loves Jesus. There's no question about that. I think that that, that the great divide is between, it, it, you, you have Catholics, Anglicans, Orthodox believers, where we really believe this stuff, we share a lot in common. What has come to be the case is in American Protestantism and, and in a lot of the American mainline church, including a kind of a, a mainline Roman Catholicism in the United States, I don't know how believed the essential stuff of the faith is. So I'm not, I'm not that interested in drawing the distinctions between myself and other folks in these Catholic traditions. I, I don't know that that's necessarily accurate or helpful because there is vibrant faith. Is it more just the classical distinction in many churches between the liberal wing of the church and the conservative wing of the church? There are those who are explaining why the Bible isn't true anymore, and there are those who are explaining why it is. Is that, it would, would that make sense? Yeah. To me, I think that, that more accurately describes, and I think it also accurately describes this sort of deadening of, of the worship of the church. I mean, it is hard to keep a worship a liturgy vibrant and alive when you're just doubting what it is the liturgy has you saying. But when you believe it and you can enter into it, you, you have this amazing experience of finding that the liturgy gives, gives phrase to experiences that you're having in your life, but you may not have the theological wherewithal to verbalize that and to set it before God. And so you, the, what the liturgy does is it puts you in touch with human beings just like you who have dealt with situations just like you, but who have been able to offer that back to the Lord in ways that your theological depth maybe doesn't allow you to. And so the, the sort of the, the great gift of the historical liturgy, and, and in the more contemporary tradition, like the only saint able to guide you is, you know, a 32-year-old pastor who's up in front in tight jeans and sneakers and an open-collar shirt who may be an amazing guy, and he may absolutely may be phenomenal, may be brilliant, may really love Jesus with all of his heart. But 
that worship tradition has so cut itself off from the riches of folks who have walked this road before, who've suffered things on behalf of their faith, um, who can then give voice in ways that that are necessary for making it through. And I tell so, you, Chip, we're going to have to wrap up. You look at it different. I wonder if in this time it might not help for us, uh, us given a double take on some of those traditions. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it records the Apostle Paul's words to the ancient church at Thessalonica, a port city in Greece on the Aegean Sea. He said, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Tas paradasis, literally closely handing over a tradition. Now, most of us have grown up in a culture with more of an iconoclastic spirit than what the Apostle Paul seems to be recommending. We hear tradition, and our minds probably go to the great musical Fiddler on the Roof, perhaps remembering the apparent folly of a fiddler standing on a pitched roof trying to scratch out a tune. How does he keep his balance, they asked. The answer, tradition. Where did this tradition come from? I don't know is the answer in the musical. The tune of the song is catchy as tradition is repeated in the chorus. Harder to come to mind are some of the other questions and answered heard in that context. Because of tradition, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. We do well to let that one stop us in our tracks. Would you like to know who you are and what God expects you to do? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you'd go to the homepage of Church of the Apostles, apostlescolumbia.org, you'd be greeted with this slogan, a contemporary church in an ancient tradition. There you would find joyful people who know that they're in the image of God. You'd find confidence in their worship as they follow traditions rooted in a book inspired by God. We can all think of traditions we found to be silly, antiquated, worth casting off in our life. Sometimes such came as a result of maturity and growth. Sometimes it was the result of folly. Prayer before meals, tradition. Respect for our elders, tradition. Please, thank you, tradition. After you, if you'd please, Lord willing, traditions. You're looking for some calm in the storms of daily life, perhaps checking out the traditions the apostles spoke about 2,000 years ago could be a place of comfort. It's worth remembering sometimes new and improved is often neither. It's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Go and enjoy God today. Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchfirstand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. And 
Until then, remember, church hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?